Welcome to the Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee of Denver City Council. The Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee begins now. Like, I had to reset my password, you know, at 90 days, and it hasn't populated all the way through. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Robin Kanich. I'm your chair this morning, and this is the Denver City Council Committee on Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness. And it is another of our special locations. We're here in what we call the Par Widener Community Room instead of the Denver City Council Chambers um, because we are doing a panel discussion again this week. Um, I'll say more about that, but we're gonna go ahead and start with introductions of our city council members who are here. So I will start to my right. Uh, good morning, Paul Cashman, uh, represents South Denver District 6. Good morning, Madam Chair, Stacy Gilmore, District 11. Good morning, Amanda Sawyer, District 5. Uh, good morning, everyone, Kevin Flynn, Southwest Denver, District 2. Thank you so much to my colleagues. So this is the second in a series of three conversations that this committee is beginning with. And the first we had on February 1st, we had medical doctors who were experts in substance misuse disorders and teaching us uh, as committee members and the community who listened in about how substances work in our brains and our bodies and a little bit of the basics about the beginnings of treatment. As we described then, they're not the only experts in this topic, that they um, just helped us provide the first foundation that we were gonna hear from other experts. There are many different types of professionals and expertise and we were gonna hear from people with community lived experience as well. This was a topic that we decided to bring to committee because we know it impacts our community. And frankly, there's a lot of conversation that is um, lacking in the perspective of people with lived experience, honestly. We have a lot of elected officials both in our building, um, in the campaign that's happening in our community for the, the city elections that are coming up, as well as across the park at the state capitol, even in some conversations happening later today. And we didn't feel really that we were hearing enough from the people who have lived. And so we're so grateful to have a panel today of people who have lived in our community, worked in our community. Um, and we have invited a moderator who will take over. For me, as I chair this committee and I will be sitting back and listening with all of you. Um, and so I'm gonna introduce J.K. Costello, who is here to moderate and uh, take over the conversation. We will stop a, a little bit after 11.30 to make sure we have time for some questions questions from our colleagues, but he will be moderating until that time. So if you can hold your questions until 11.30, that would be great. And I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much for being here to all of you, though. Right. And their introductions will be part of that. Thanks, Councilwoman Knich. My name's JK, and on July 3rd, 2014, I was in a hospital bed, and I developed pancreatitis. And after years of alcohol, marijuana, followed by cocaine, opioids, I was in the hospital, um, like I said, with pancreatitis and intensive care. And eight years later, almost nine years, I get to be in front of the city council. And so my message is anybody can be there and anybody can be here. So what made that difference between then and now? Is it magic? Kind of seems like it. Recovery seems like magic sometimes. 
But I want to give a framework for recovery that might be helpful as you think about that. Um, and that's the SAMHSA pillars of recovery, which are home, health, community, and purpose. Home, health, community, and purpose. And different people take different routes, but I think a lot of what you'll hear from fellow panelists, myself, can be framed into those four pillars of recovery, home, health, community, and purpose. And so for me, um, within a year before I was in that hospital bed, I had lost my medical license, had my door knocked down by the feds, lost my wedding, um, potential wedding. <laughs> it goes on and on. Um, but the worst of it was I lost my relationships with my family, my friends, all my money, my career. So I went to treatment here because it was clear I could no longer live with drugs, but I didn't know how to live without them. And I ended up at a place called Cedar at the University of Colorado. And once I got out, I had to find those four things as soon as possible. And I never found those before. So I found a place, 400 bucks a month. This was, this was eight years ago, 400 bucks a month. <laughs> and, and I was living with a friend, which was not where I saw myself as a doctor in my 30s living. But it was a place that I could jump off from in a city that I had chosen, Denver, where my sister was. So I had a home. And I stayed there for years and years. I'm still proud to be a resident. Health. I got Medicaid, which was something that I didn't tell people about for years because I was so ashamed that I was a doctor on Medicaid. But that helped me get counseling and improve my relationships and stay off drugs. And I did a lot of things outside of health care that were health, too. Started to play basketball. I started to row boats. Um, I got in better health. I started to eat better. Um, none of those things I could do when I was using substances. And I found community, right? The city at large, but also 12-step community, non-12-step communities. There's a gym called the Phoenix for sober people that I started to attend. There's groups that do sober events. There's so many more opportunities now. I'm on the board of an organization that does arts for people in recovery. So I found community in those with my sister, my larger family, and communities outside of recovery. And then purpose has been my best. I found a career in healthcare, not in medicine, uh, and I run a local consulting firm in healthcare around substance use. And that's really helped drive my purpose. And so now from when I get up and when, till when I go to bed, I really do recovery all day. And it makes me so happy. Um, so I found those things, home, health, community, and purpose, and it helps me frame that. And um, a lot of people ask, like, when does recovery stop? And it never stops. Uh, it just starts to look more like other people's lives. Like my problems probably look a lot like your problems now, um, which are very different than when I got out of treatment. So with that, I'm going to hand it off to our panelists, but I hope you can carry that forward through this meeting and in future, um, your ideas of recovery about home health, community, and purpose. I'm going to hand it off to Keith Hayes next. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me today. My name is Keith Hayes. Uh, I am the director of recovery at 5280 High School. Uh, we are a high school here in Denver that serves students who struggle with substance abuse. And I'm very grateful to be a part of that organization. Uh, but six years ago, my life didn't look like it looks like today. Um, I was a 20-year drug addict and alcoholic. Um, I have experienced homelessness, living on the streets. Um, I have been in the judicial system for a large part of my adult life. Um, I have lost family and friends as a result of the disease of addiction. Um, I cannot maintain a job anymore uh, as a result of the disease of addiction. And the truth is, is I was broken. I was beaten down. I was battered. I lost not only my humanity, but I lost my dignity in active addiction. 
I had no longer had purpose in my life. My kids didn't want anything to do with me. Um, my mom didn't want anything to do with me. She had to uh, cut me off and make some very challenging decisions around our relationship. And, you know, I finally got to this place where I woke up one morning off of Colfax and I had slept in a park. And I woke up that morning and um, I just had this burning idea that I no longer wanted to live like this anymore. And at the time, I was on the run from Denver probation at the time. And um, I remember the next day going to go see my probation officer and I was turning myself in and I was getting ready to go to prison and I was like, hey, just let me go do these three years and I'm gonna try to figure out how to recreate my life. And my probation officer uh, showed me so much grace and she allowed me to go to treatment. And I went to the Salvation Army, which is not some Malibu Beach Club uh, <laughs> treatment facility, okay? It is a free program, but it's people straight off the street. Um, and they allowed me an opportunity to start my journey in recovery. And um, that place is now closed, right? It's another pillar in our community that is now closed that cannot keep their doors open. That was a free program that has helped thousands of people get clean. And um, because of that program, I found connection. I found recovery. I found it like-minded individuals who had been in that same hole that I had been in, and they had found how to get out of that hole. And I found community with them. And I found this bond that I, you can't put into words. And um, I also found myself in the, in the rooms of 12-step recovery as a result of that. Um, but I've, I've built so many other connections. There's so many different pathways to recovery. You know, we have recovery churches in our community now. And like you heard JK say earlier, we have sober events that we can go to. And it's just so many opportunities uh, for us to find our way. And now today I have a life that I never thought was possible, filled with immense purpose. And my purpose today is to help every single kid in the Denver community get sober and find their purpose and their passions and get their high school diploma and be able to recreate their lives at such a young age. You know, we have ninth grade kids at our school who have almost a year sober. And um, that is so awesome. And I, I feel like we can crush um, this, 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 this school, no, school to jail pipeline if we can make affection, if we can make that effect through our youth. So I'm just grateful to be here with you guys today and uh, I look forward to our conversation. Thanks, Keith. And next we have Christina. Hello, I'm Christina and I'm 18 years old. I'm in active recovery from the disease of addiction. My sobriety date is October 4th, 2019. When I first started using, I definitely did not intend to end up here. I spent my whole life feeling out of place and I didn't have many friends. The first time I used drugs, all of my insecurities seemed to have left my body. People started to like me more and I thought I liked myself more. I was 12 years old beginning seventh grade. Throughout the two and a half years I used, my life slowly started falling apart. By the time I was 14, I had basically dropped out of school. My friends had become non-existent and my family had become my roommates. I had been hospitalized, hospitalized around six times for suicide attempts and went in and out of therapies. I was a shell of a human who hated waking up every day. I was battling anorexia and severe addiction. A little over three years ago, I was brought into a 12-step based program targeted towards young people in addiction. Following the next few months, I began to work the 12 steps of recovery. Though the path was far from easy, it has led me to the life I never thought I'd be living. Sitting here today at 18 years old, I have a little over three years sober. I can confidently say I love the life I live. Since being in active recovery, I've been able to go back to the school, 
with plans of graduating this May. I have overcome a 10-year-plus battle with anorexia as well as self-harm. My family now means the world to me, and I call my mom my best friend. <laughs> I have friends that genuinely love and care about me, and I have plans to travel Europe beginning this August, then further my education starting in the fall of 2024. But most importantly, I love the woman that I am today. Waking up is no longer a chore, but a miracle. This constant overwhelming hatred towards myself is now just a distant memory. This is all accredited to the beautiful world of recovery. Recovery brought me to 5280 High School that helped me find my worth and led me to the life I live today. I'm grateful to be here and thank you. Thanks, Christina. Great story. And next, we have Alex Baldessari. Hi, I'm, I'm Alex Baldessari. Um, thank you for having me today. Thank you for, for hearing our stories. Um, I. Growing up, I had a really bright outlook, um, like a really bright future ahead of me, like so bright, I had to wear shades. Um, <laughs> I graduated from the University of Colorado at 20 years old with a bachelor's degree in neuroscience. Um, and then three years later, through a series of unfortunate events, I found myself addicted to cocaine and working as a stripper in Colorado Springs. Um, at that point, um, I had been seeing this psychiatrist who um, told me that <clears throat> if I didn't make a drastic change, I was going to kill myself um, very soon because, you know, I, I had just like fallen so far and was just circling the drain and was only living um, to use cocaine day in and day out. Um, so I, my family found out, and and I when I went to treatment, I have. Um, upper middle class parents and I could afford to go to a uh, very nice treatment center in Estes Park. I did 30 days in residential treatment where they also detoxed me and then I went door to door to a 90 day transitional program um, where I did um, partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient with housing and then from there I spent four months in sober living so I did a long-term transition of care and that served me really well at that point um, I moved out of sober living because I was working as a peer in recovery I started working um, in you know one of the the programs that I went through myself um, and I found a great deal of purpose there and I continued my my own like recovery journey um, through continuing to engage in the 12 steps um, in the 12 step fellowship the re recovery community at large um, and also um, I attended individual therapy every week for 18 months um, and and really resolved some some trauma some lifelong trauma um, today I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. I never could have imagined. I get to work today. I'm, I'm a peer support supervisor for the Colorado Support Line, um, and that means I get to provide like support and professional development for the for the peer specialists who answer those phone calls. So I get to be like a leader amongst peers, and that is so cool. Um, and like I have a fridge full of healthy food and um, I've, I have a baby on the way which is, I, I met my husband in recovery um, I have home health community and purpose my I mean my credit score has gone up like 350 points in, in, in four years um, and and th that's all because of recovery so thank you thanks Alex next Kathleen Quinn Hi everyone, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak in front of you today. After my marriage of 16 and a half years ending, I didn't know where to turn. 
Life as I knew it was no longer. I was what you would consider a normie until I was 35 years old. I resorted to drinking in search of myself and adjusting to the circumstances. My drinking led to drug use and actively seeking it out. It never got better. I sought treatment and stayed sober for a couple of months, but my sobriety and drug use stints didn't last much more than that. One for nine months for the next 15 years. My substance use disorder led to homelessness three times, several sober living attempts, even to have one manager tell me, honey, if you don't have it down by now, you're never gonna get it. Oops, sorry. Um, I coped with my problems through drug use and alcohol use, but never addressed my childhood traumas despite counseling. Drug use was my way out. I went, through, went on throughout the years putting my family through turmoil and I engaged in risky behaviors. One of my last attempts at sobriety awarded me housing through low-income low income housing with the gathering place. They placed me in their housing program and I haven't been homeless since. Four years later, I entered the world of recovery again, begging God to help me. I saw my life quickly spiraling, getting pulled over a few times by law enforcement, not wanting to end up in prison, and my ch children distancing themselves, and many more incidences. I now have eight years, 11 months clean and sober. I am a certified peer support specialist and work at Denver Women's Correctional Facility as a community connections co coordinator running a program for reentry. I did reentry at the county level for a local nonprofit agency, the empowerment program that was awarded the grant. Housing is a major issue for men and women releasing from county jail and, and prison, more prevalent at the state level. Trauma goes unaddressed in prison and in society. I still have some traumas to work through, but as we say in the rooms of recovery, I am a work in progress. I truly do, it truly does take a village to give the underserved a head start. Thank you. Thanks, Kathleen. All right. And for our last introduction, we have Afiza Brown. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. I was thinking, where am I going to start? So I'll start with my childhood. I grew up in, I felt, I kind of grew up in an ostracized environment for me. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. And so in the 70s, it was kind of like an unpleasant bullying environment my whole life. We finally made it to Colorado. Um, and I was raised by a single mother. She had three kids. She, my father, I still don't know him. So and that's like the beginning of my life. Throughout my years, of, um, I experienced a lot of abuse, emotional, physical, um, um, participated in human trafficking against my will, but that was a part of my child. That was my childhood. So in that process, when my uh, my mother and her many many relationships, um, it put me as a direct person to be used by that person. So I just don't want to go into detail and trigger anybody. So that's part of the beginning of my childhood. Um, my recovery date started June 7th, 1998, and that's after many forced recovery treatment centers I was sentenced to, drug court, Cottonwood, Haven, I can name many treatment centers. So, and that, well, let me back up a little bit because I was in and out of many group homes in Colorado for girls too. 
So because my mother abandoned us, um, I was 15 and pregnant, and so me and my brother and sister were, ended up separated in foster care. And every group home that they put me in, I would run from. So like I started with Triad, Howe House, Denver Children's Home. I think that's the one I was in the longest, and I was 15, so they were gonna take my baby. I ran away, ran away. So now I'm a 15-year-old pregnant homeless woman with nowhere to go, child. I was a child at that time. Um, I um, never really got involved in drugs as a teenager. So by the time I was 20 years old, I had four children and no fathers. Their fathers were incarcerated. I was 20 with four babies. Um, I turned to drugs and alcohol. I started drinking, really didn't like the alcohol, so I ended up starting abusing crack cocaine. I became addicted real quick. And I learned later today that a lot <clears throat> of my addiction is connected to my trauma. There's no way. I believe that trauma is the gateway drug. I do not believe that any other, it's trauma. So as time went on, eventually my sons ended up in foster care, so here we have generational trauma. I went through the system, so now my children are in foster care and they ended up in Denver Children's Home. Eventually I had done so many things that I was, probation didn't work, every forced treatment that they sent me to, it didn't work, and I think a lot of that forced treatment was due to, it was for other people, it wasn't for me. I didn't decide that I wanted a different life until after I was sentenced to the Department of Corrections. I was sentenced June 7th, 1998 to the Department of Corrections and I spent 18 months there. When I got out, um, something in there happened to me and it was more about me and my kids. Uh, <laughs> you go to prison, there's no recovery, there's no treatment. You become angry, bitter, so now I'm angry and I'm bitter and now my children are experiencing the same childhood I grew up with. So. Eventually, after I was released, I got out of prison in um, two, right before Y2K, so when they thought the world was gonna end. Went to a halfway house, worked my way through that. I had someone that I met that was actually a Denver sheriff, and so for me, now I'm a felon, I'm an addict, and this, per this woman from a whole different side of the world who actually worked at the county jail. I don't know if I should say her name. She came in my life and made promises to me, and she was like, there's something about you, there's something about you. And so she helped me, she went, she did, she was a foster mother, but she also worked at the jail. I didn't know she had my children, and she couldn't tell me that. So anyway, she was a huge part of my recovery, having somebody in my life that believed in me more than I believed in myself. So working with her, getting through the prison sentence, getting off parole where I can be a part of my children's life, and I have four sons, she may kept her promises, and that inspired me. Like, that became our family, me and my sons, it was just me and them. I felt like against the world. So in that process, I got my children back. I was granted custody back of my children. It was a lot of work, so I had social services to deal with. I had parole stipulations to do. I had to get my own place, find a job with the record. They didn't have reentry when I got out of prison. They didn't have any of those services. They definitely didn't have housing. I've also experienced homelessness in my addiction, literally sleeping on Colfax on bus stops. That was part of my recovery. So I can keep going. So I. Um, Recovery is close to my heart. Try not to cry. I have, I lost one of my sons. He didn't make it in recovery like I did, so the guilt from that. So I think sometimes I have survivor guilt, but I lost a son in 2019. And it was because the historical trauma, I have to say this, that people, women of color face in, in, in America, and then there's generational trauma. And he couldn't pull through, so he wasn't as fortunate as me. And so he OD'd, he died. Um, and that was in 2019, and I'm still struggling with that, but I'm still sober. Today, I'm a woman in recovery. I, I'm a grandmother. 
I got to be a part of their life. My children were angry. I had four sons who now were angry and bitter, and they were in and out of the system. We finally pulled it together so my grandchildren didn't have to end up in foster care. I am um, the founder and executive director of the Don't Look Back Center today. Uh, and our services, we have gender responsive services. So we're a recovery community center, and we're in Aurora and in Denver. We have um, our services are for women, trans women, and non-binary individuals. And any walk of life when you come in, we also have to provide housing. And we just started a new program. It's called the Mom and Me program because of the lack of services for women where they don't have to separate from their baby. When they're incarcerated, they get out. They can keep the baby. The bonding, the things that happen, that separation. And then now, well, I don't know how else to say it other than we're creating more clients from that, that baby because he was separated from his mom at birth. So trying to, to bridge that gap. Um, so, and we have uh, so, sober living homes. Um, that's all I have. That's how I live my life today. I have a life that I never imagined I'd have either, ever. Never thought, oh, also when I, before I went to prison, I didn't even have a GED because of course I didn't finish school. So when I got out of school, I mean got out of prison, I went back to school so I can give back. So today I live my life, role model on the possibilities of a better life. If I can do it, I feel like any woman can do it because it was hard. Thanks, Sophiza. Every time I hear your story, I learn something new. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> oh, man. I'm trying not to cry when I think about my son. So. All right. Next, we got a series of questions um, that were developed by our panelists and myself. And we're going to give them about two minutes apiece to go through response to these questions. And after that, we'll move into city councilor questions. So the first question is, there's a popular conception you have to hit rock bottom before you find recovery. Tell me how you feel about that, Christina. Um, well, I think, at least in my, in my experience and in my recovery and like watching other people around me get sober, you know, I think there is no destined rock bottom. There's no one rock bottom. For me, in like my experience, my rock bottom is when I decided to put down the shovel. But in order for me to get sober, I had to realize that I needed to put down that shovel. Because um, it isn't... I, there always could be further bottoms that I could have reached, you know, and like, sure, like I got sober at a super young age, so my life would have been looking a lot different now if I was continuing to use. But that day that I decided to put down the shovel, that's the day that I decided this is my rock bottom and I need to get help. And so I, I would say, at least in my experience, it was crucial for me to hit that rock bottom, yes. Thanks. How about you, Alex? question because it's a yes and no question right like that that whole put the shovel down concept there's a piece of our literature that talks about um you know there's a, a section of our community that was able to see the bottom coming up to hit them and that was enough right um i i've never been homeless i have never been arrested i you know, I have all these not yets out there waiting for me if I choose, you know, to change my way of life today and to stop doing the things that I do on a daily basis um, to stay sober. Um, but I had, I had a moment, right? I had a moment where I didn't recognize myself anymore. I had done something so shameful. I realized that I was hurting the people around me um, so much. I just couldn't 
look at myself anymore you know something had to give and um, I was I was I mean my parents were gonna cut me off which is you know the most it's a privileged consequence to have right but um, you know that's what I was facing and so so I, I went to treatment right and and you know I, I didn't even realize that I was an an, an addict when I went to treatment um, I <sighs> But I went and I and I did the things um, and and I learned I was kind of educated along the way too. So so we we do have to reach a point where we're we're willing to make drastic changes. Thanks, Alex. Um, personally, I think yeah, it's all relative, right? I have and, and that's the importance of having people around you, so that you can see people on this side and people on this side. Because if you're out there on your own, you can keep digging. Um, but if you see people around you who are at the next step, you say, hey, I don't, I don't need to be that. Um, and so the peer norming really helps you to realize this could be it. Um, this could be my last day. And, and some of the most profound things you hear in recovery <laughs> are the simplest. Like someone said, when I first got to recovery, you never have to use again. And I'm like, that, I never thought about that before. Seems, seems ridiculous. Most people never have the conception to use drugs in the first place, but that was so profound that, that like I could stop using and never use again. And it took me a while to really incorporate that into my life, as, as did many people, but um, that it made me realize that could be my rock bottom that day, and it was. All right, our second question, what is the role of trauma and substance use, and what can we do to address trauma? Kathleen. That's one of the reasons I used. Um, I had a lot of childhood trauma, and um, I was in and out of the hospital after my divorce um, and adult trauma. But after my divorce, I, I was in and out of uh, the hospital several, several times. And um, I, I had no more reason to live. And I never addressed the traumas that um, I experienced as a child until I entered recovery and I learned how to live again. Um, and that's by doing the 12 steps and, and finally getting that monkey off my back. I had more than one. And um, by working the 12 steps of recovery, that got me um, to see that I'm worth something and I went to several, several years of counseling, but um, what did it for me was the 12 steps and then EMDR therapy. Uh, EMDR um, uh, is an incredible therapy that I would highly recommend for anybody that has trauma to be addressed. Um, the, the mental health system in the prison is, is, like I said, was non-existent. And I asked the women when I create a profile from them, uh, do you have um, any childhood adult trauma? And 99% of the women in prison or jail, because I worked at the county level too, have had trauma history. And uh, it, it doesn't get addressed for all the time that they're in there. And so by the time they get out, you know, they, they don't know where to go. And I tell the women, please, please make that your priority when you get out and, and look into EMDR. And, and at the county level, I would highly recommend 
that if, if you're going to order somebody to drug court, please order them the counseling. You know, that's, that's what's going to help these people get through this. That's going to be able to help our community get better. It, there's nothing wrong with going to counseling, and they, it has to be normalized more, and, it, and that it's okay to feel the way you're feeling. Because you can get through it, but it take, like I said, it takes that village. Thanks, Kathleen. Hafiza. I believe that um, trauma and substance abuse need to be addressed simultaneously. I, and, and identifying that you even have trauma. I know in my life, I didn't realize that the things that happened through my childhood, I knew they were traumatic, but I didn't know they had such a huge impact on the decisions I made as an adult. And it had a generational impact. So that trauma-informed care in trauma-informed care so not just sentencing people to treatment if that's going to happen to them being able to identify a trauma therapist and I strongly believe that when you think about therapy in any fashion especially trauma therapy that person that they're meeting with or they're sitting across the table from really need to be able to identify with that person or have somebody that looks like you or at least close to you because there's different cultures. So I think it needs to be cultural competence needs to be incorporated in that as well. And um, when we think about like non-binary non or LGBTQ plus community and the trans community, having providers that can provide those services, it matters um, in order for me to feel safe enough to even start working on when I was five and six years old and what was going on in my life. So that's my two cents and because once you trigger someone's trauma and they start having flashback, it increases the cravings. Increases the cravings and then they're at higher risk for relapse. So if it's not addressed, again, I'll say simultaneously at the same time. And especially for those who have dual diagnosis. Can you say what that means, please? Dual diagnosis is when you have uh, substance abuse and mental health. So if you're struggling with both, and most people are, um, that's what that is. Thank you. All right, next question. Several of the people here are peers themselves. I think most of us have worked with peer recovery coaches. So this question is, what's the importance of peers in your recovery? Alex. So I love this question. Um, when I went, I went to treatment, and I, and like I said, I, I didn't know that I needed to be there. I didn't really think that I, that I needed to be there, and um, but I saw these people who were working, and they were working like they were they were like driving the van, and they were they were staying at the house with me at night, and they had stories like I had, right? They used to drink and use like I used to drink and use. And now all of a sudden they can hold down jobs and they have relationships with their families and and they can do all these things that I just couldn't even imagine. I thought I wasn't capable of doing these things. That's why I was I was working as a stripper, just I just thought it, it was just unfathomable for me, and it, it planted this seed of hope, right? Um, and I realized that that if I wanted those things that they had, then I should do what they did, right? Um, and so it kind of gave me it gave me like like a path to follow, right? Whereas like um, 
the clinical work was also a huge important part of my recovery pie, um, but it wasn't like that that roadmap, right, that peers provided for me. Um, and then today working as a peer, like that's that's my home health community purpose. That's my that's my livelihood. That's my that's how I I I pay my bills and I and I I feel like I matter and I um, belong, right? And I can contribute um, and, and all of a sudden, my addiction, this thing that used to be this like skeleton in my closet and my biggest handicap has now become my biggest asset. Thanks, Alex. Keith. Um, peer support is absolutely critical to our recovery. Um, it's the analogy of you're not going to take advice from a broke person. You're not going to take financial advice from a broke person, right? It's the same thing in recovery, right? I need to be around some individuals who understand exactly what I've been through and what I've gone through. And peer support comes in a lot of different ways. You know, we have certified peer recovery coaches now who help individuals who maybe are in treatment or getting out of treatment, and they meet with them individually and they work with them. You know, we have peer support in the 12-step rooms. It's a lot of different ways to be able to show up as a peer. And the truth is, is that recovery is about being altruistic, doing something for somebody else, not expecting anything back in return. And it's so important today that I get the opportunity today to show up for other people and to take them through the work of recovery. It's a privilege. It's a gift that's been given to me because I'm in recovery. And if it wasn't for so many people who recovered out loud, they weren't silent. They weren't quiet. They gave me hope. They gave me this, this just purpose that I too could recover no matter what I've been through, no matter what my trauma was, no matter... Um, how many times I've been to jail, no matter how bleak it looked, that recovery was possible. And it's so important that we give people hope today. And people reach out to me. I know a lot of people in the city. This is my city. This is where I'm from. And a lot of people reach out to me and say, I don't know who to turn to. But I see you so openly talking about your recovery. I see you on TV. I see you doing all these things. And I just want to know, are you willing to help me? Because I want to be free from this bondage that I'm in. And that's a blessing. It's a blessing. I think peer, and we're seeing peers now all over. We're seeing peers in the city and county of Denver. We're seeing peers all through the recovery community. And it's working. And the more peers that we have and the more people we have get certifications, the more people we're going to be able to help, the more hope we're going to be able to give, and the more we're going to be able to break the stigma of addiction and continue to recover out loud. Thanks, Keith. I, I'd actually like to share my story. When I was treatment, peers, professional peers weren't really a thing, um, but I had two different treatments. And the first one, all the counselors were counselors and they didn't have lived experience of recovery. And they treated me like a client and they gave me advice that was from a book. And the second time I went to treatment, every person that worked there was in recovery. The counselors, the behavioral people that drove the vans, the nurses, the, do the doctors, everybody. And they treated me like themselves. And I saw myself in a few years in them. And they didn't give me advice, they shared their story with me. And I had their cell phone, I still have their personal cell phone number, that's weird. Um, I had their cell phone number and I could call them and talk to them when they weren't on. 
And it gave me, I didn't realize at the time, but now I realize that I'm, I'm them now, right? I'm a professional who works in recovery and I, I'm like them. I'm, I'm friends with them on LinkedIn. I, I call them, these people who are professionals, you know, five years ago, they're still professionals, are, are my colleagues and my friends. And that helped me see what I could be. And it helped me understand that this wasn't an academic experience, that I could follow what other people had done and end up where they were. So that was just a mind blowing to me, showed me how much, uh, how important it was to have people like you talk to you as an equal. I'd also like to hear from Christina about this too. Thank you. Um, I don't know, I think this question is really important, you know, because as someone that got sober super young, like I got, the first time I walked into the rooms, I was 15. So obviously as a 15 year old, and then just as a human in general, I'm super susceptible to my surroundings. Like I'm gonna cling on to like the way that people are behaving and the way that people are acting. And like, I was a teenager and I still am a teenager, you know? So it's like, I had that feeling of like, I really wanted to fit in. Um, and so like taking that in a recovery sense, you know, like the best way it was ever put to me is if I'm like an active soccer player and if I'm going after school and playing soccer all the time, like I'm not gonna go and like hang out with football players on the weekend. Like I'm gonna go hang out with other soccer players. Cause like, if I was hanging out with people that were getting high and stuff, it was automatically like I was gonna wanna get high or like I was gonna wanna like participate because I felt like I was missing out, you know, and I felt like I was missing out of these like crucial teenage years. But the more and more I surrounded myself with people in recovery and people my age that are in recovery, the more and more that like I wanted to go and like work towards where they were at, you know. Um, because it is, my recovery would not have been able to reach the point where it is today if it wasn't for those people that reached out to me and shared their story with me um, and just got vulnerable with me. So where they gave me that hope and they gave me that faith. Um, and it, it gave me something to work towards. And just, it, it gave me a sense of belonging in a like weird world of being a teenager and also getting sober as a teenager. Like nobody does that. Um, and so I, I just, I needed that in order to continue to be in recovery. But yeah, that's, I, I think that they're extremely important in order for an adolescent especially to get sober. Uh, that's a great point. Like we think of ourselves as the main drivers of our, of our fate, but really we do the things that people around us do. And so when we hang out with people in recovery, it's a lot easier to be in recovery. All right. Uh, next one's meant to generate a little little discussion, maybe disagreement. Recently, there have been some movements in New York and San Francisco toward more forced treatment and recovery. So I'd like to hear your opinion on the role of um, forced or coercive treatment in recovery. And I'm gonna call on Kathleen first. Use forced, forced recovery. Um, <laughs> Kathleen, I can you pull your mic just a little bit closer? Thank you. Loud. That's what I You know, I, I I don't know how much I agree with the forced recovery, but um, I think it should be suggested. You know, um, you know the the forced drug court. That's a good uh, a good thing. But um, I'm going to go back to the trauma issue. You know, and they should be, they should be, we should be making sure that people getting out of prison or, or people looking to clean their lives up should go to counseling. 
Um, it's it's huge, um, you know, and and we can all do that with peer support specialists. It just it just takes us. Uh, they 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 get us, you know, and as even a certified addiction counselor, um, technician, it's only 10, 12 classes, and and we have that experience, you know, we can talk to um, the the people that are seeking recovery, but forced recovery, I'm. I'm not positive. I'm, I'm not sold on that yet. Um, but I, I, I really do think they should be made to go to counseling. I really do. Thank you. Next, Hafiza. Well, the role of forced treatment in recovery, I believe that forced treatment is for other people. Sometimes I feel like I was forced to go to treatment and it was opposed to going to prison or opposed to doing something else. Um, it was for my family, it was for my kids. It wasn't literally for that. It's not, it wasn't for me because I wasn't ready. I hadn't healed yet. I hadn't done some of the other work I needed to do. When we, well, and it's also uh, triggers your trauma. Like it's re-traumatizing to be forced to go to a treatment center. You're there resentfully and regretfully from my experience, and I've been sober, it'll be 25 years in June. I haven't seen too many people happy. Um, and you think, you know, they say roll with the resistance the best that you can. But when you're forcing someone, you're forcing someone to immediately heal or immediately address something. And so it, I don't know about that. I don't think it should be forced. I agree with Kathy that probably suggested and maybe suggested by someone who's also in recovery. I think it would be a smoother process if that person's also in recovery because it removes, I know for me working with people in recovery and people tell me it removes a lot of shame and barriers and stigma. And so when you're talking to someone who can really understand why did you smoke up the rent money this time again? You know, someone that's going to remove that shame and that uh, stigma from you. So those are my thoughts on forced, it's re-traumatizing, I think. Thanks, Fiza. Keith. I'm going to give it to you guys from a couple of different lenses here. You know, I see parents um, dealing with their adolescents. And the truth is, guys, we're in the worst drug crisis our country's ever seen. And our kids are using drugs at a younger and younger age. I mean, I got kids that were sticking needles in their arm at 10 years old. Okay? That's a real thing. And I see families force they're teenagers to go to treatment. And the relapse percentages are way higher for adolescents and adults who are forced into treatment. People who go to treatment voluntarily, their percentages of recovering are way higher. But from another lens, I've also seen people forced into treatment. And once they got into treatment, they heard something. Something resonated with them. Somebody there maybe was a special person they were in treatment with, but it clicked. And when it clicks, it just clicks. And I have seen people who have been forced into treatment come out of treatment and recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Do I think that it is, should be the norm? No. The statistics just clearly show us that if you're forced into treatment, your chances of recovering are a lot less. But 
I have seen some situations where people have been forced into treatment and came out of it ready to truly recreate their lives. But I don't think that needs to be the norm. Um, I watch my kids get forced into treatment, they get out of treatment, and they spiral and spiral even more out of control. And when I see my kids go into treatment willing and wanting to learn how to be sober, to learn how to deal uh, with how to be comfortable in their own skin, I see them come out and their chances of recovering the relapse rates uh, dramatically reduce. Thank you, sir. All right, for the last 10 minutes or so, I'm gonna ask everybody to answer the same question. And that one is, how can we improve opportunities for recovery in Denver? Keith. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, to me, I, I don't know if we're taking the seriousness nature of what's going on with our kids with drugs and alcohol. Um, ever since marijuana has been legalized, uh, these kids have a lot easier access to it. Now, this marijuana these kids are smoking is not the stuff that we smoked in the 80s and the 90s. You know, that stuff was 3 to 8, 10% THC. My babies are smoking stuff that's 80 to 90% THC on brains that are still developing. I see kids go into marijuana psychosis. And some of these kids don't even come out of it. And we're just talking about marijuana. That's not including cocaine. You know, I have lost students at my school as a result of fentanyl overdoses. These are real challenges that we're dealing with and we have to give more resources to our youth, provide them more safe spaces to learn about recovery, to hear about recovery, more free programming if possible for them to be able to meet other teenagers who have gotten clean and sober where they can build relationships and bonds with. We need more treatment options, more beds that are accessible for our kids, no matter their social economic, social economic status, right? I have kids who have died waiting to get into treatment, but because all the beds are full, they died in the process. So these are the struggles that I see in our community on a daily basis. And I don't have all the answers, but I think we need to continue to have more conversations about it. We need to see what we can do um, as a community to provide more resources for our kids. Thank you. Next, Christina. Thank you. Um, I don't know. I think kind of bounce off what Keith was saying, you know, treatment and good treatment options really are only accessible for upper to middle class families, you know. Like I had the privilege of being able to go to a really good treatment facility, but that I know isn't accessible for a lot of other people. Um, so I think as a community and like as a state, we need to lower the prices a lot of different treatment facilities that are a lot nicer, you know. Um, but also I think the biggest thing, especially for adolescents is normalizing getting sober at a super young age, you know, cause there was a big stigma around me getting sober super young especially amongst my peers and amongst like, you know, older, like, I don't want to say old people, but old, <laughs> <laughs> older people um, <laughs> that like, oh, like you're too young to know you're an addict or like, do you really like, is this really the best decision for you or you're going to miss out on so much. But like, if we had those discussions of normalizing, getting sober at a super young age and normalizing addiction at a super young age, 
then a lot less kids are gonna go out and like, simply put, pass away, you know? Cause like he said, like I've had, I've known a lot of people and like, I know people that know a lot of people that have died as a result of this addiction. Um, and as a result of this disease, you know? And especially like with the growing fentanyl crisis and everything, it's just, it needs to be more talked about and more normalized amongst adolescents and become more affordable for these adolescents to get care. But yeah, thank you. Thank you. Alex. This is a tough question because there's really so much that can be done. Um, we're drowning. Uh, the, the water is coming in from all sides, right? Um, there's prevention that needs to be done um, to, to, to kind of, you know, stop the bleeding, right? But then, but then we also, we have this huge population of people who, who are living with addiction already, right? And so um, I, I guess a, one thing that I see is that as far as sober livings go, there's, there's like quite a few beds for people who are, who are willing to pay $1,000 a month for a twin size bed in a shared room. Um, and who need a higher level of observation. And there's not a lot of like, like transitional, like sober living options for people who maybe don't need that same level of supervision, you know, could, could pay a little bit less, um, and have a little more privacy, right? Um, and so there's there's not a ton of recovery housing options, right? Um, I also think like expanding funding for peers in recovery, expanding opportunities for peers to work in recovery, um, and like funding for education for peers and credentialing for peers. But then that that prevention piece, right? With like after school programs, um, and like 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 working with with moms, like there really is, it's so hard. It's a barrier for women to go to treatment who who have children. There's there's nothing, right? What are they gonna do with their kids? There's nothing. And so, I mean, there's, there's just really so much that could be done. Thanks, and I, I wanted to highlight that prevention, like recovery is a great story. You get to be a good public speaker, right? But it also puts your family through a lot. It's really expensive. And so, well, I don't want to, you know, deny people the whole excitement of addiction. I think prevention is it's cheaper, it's better. Um, it's really like the backstory of recovery that we need to think, think a lot more about expanding that because we don't, you don't get that in the story, but you see it in the numbers, right? Less people on substances, less people overdosing. Um, and I think this, this my, my opinion on why addiction has expanded um, the people feel, you know, ultimately it's cost benefit, right? Them, at, at some really messed up low portion of your brain, it's a cost benefit every day to continue using substances versus not. And um, people feel like it's more difficult to get a house, like it's more difficult to get a job they love, and it's easier for them to get all types of substances, right? In our city, more than most. And so I see this as, as somewhat simple math that people need to be re-enfranchised. We need to make it easier for them to achieve their dreams. And I know that's not an easy <laughs> thing, um, but home health community purpose has a lot to do with that. And maybe make it a little harder um, to get substance use, right? Because that first initiation of substance use has a lot to do with subsequent. We learned that with opioids, right? When people got exposed to their doctor, more likely to become addicted. Um, and now doctors are doing a much better job of cutting that off, and you see less people getting addicted through that route. So at some point, this is simple math with a really complex solution. 
Kathleen. I, I really think public information um, would be very helpful. Um, uh, is the average sober living house um, is $750. And when men and women come out of um, prison or county, the most they're given is $100. So when I when they're accepted into a sober living, I'm like, okay, how are we going to pay for this? And parole uh, and probation, they just don't have enough money to help cover that, even the first couple weeks or the first month. Um, the, the intermediary agency I work for, um, Latino Coalition for Community Leadership, um, they, they do have a program called the HSP Housing Program. And... Um, Corinthia uh, organization and eight other organizations in the, the county um, uh, come to the to prison to try and help the women figure out how what are we going to do next? What are we going to do when you get out? How are we going to pay for this? And most of the um, the women they just don't know. You know they they don't know what they're going to do when they get out. And and the probation and parole they just don't have the money to help and to, and that's that's the rough part because then they end up homeless and then something happens and then the question gets asked why why did why did they go homeless and and then the uh, society you know the stigma the stigma is incredible you know and and it, it really is um, community, um, education in marginalized areas. We have to know why these kids are using. We, and, and let's get to the root of the problem. Again, counseling. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, programs like Wages. Wages is a working gainful education and employment skills. Let's get that program here at the county level. And it, it doesn't have to be called Wages, but it's a great model to look at. Um, and, and you, you know, you have to have certain eligibility criteria to be part of uh, wages. You can't be on Social Security. Well, a lot of people that are disabled or that are addicts, it's not that they have to be on Social Security, but they have to be eligible to partake in those programs. Um, but wages, it specifies that you have to be employable. Let's help everybody. It doesn't matter if they're employable or not. They will get that way. I myself was on Social Security for years, and I couldn't wait to get off of it. But my mental health and my addiction didn't afford that to me. You know, and, and until I got my act together and got clean and sober, then I was able to feel like I was worth something. So we need programs that are going to make the children feel like there were something. You know, when my kids were growing up, it was the Mr. McGruff or who's that, you know, the school program. Dare, you know? dare. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and you know, being, they didn't want to be like I was, but they, they were aware, they were aware that addiction and, and alcoholism was in the family, it ran in the family. But they, they, we need, we need to start with the kids. Thanks, Kathleen. And our last respondent, Hafiza. 
have so many thoughts went through my mind. I was just thinking about how it is addiction is hereditary. So I wanted to start off with that. I learned that at a young age, so I think starting with the children. But I believe creating space for trauma-informed, gender-responsive, and gender-inclusive, culturally competent care services. That's how we can provide better services. So there needs to be a breakdown, and I'd be happy to help with that. I would really be happy to help with that. Because when I'm out in the, I guess you can say in the trenches, because I, I may be the founder and director, but I still direct direct services because that's where my heart and my passion is at. So when I'm out there and I'm at work and I see these women coming in or referred or we're in the prison or I go to the city jail, the county jail, so I'm all over the place reaching out to anyone that needs services. And sometimes they don't even realize it, but I think I find value in pre-release services, so making those connections before you're even released. Like Kathy was saying, that's what we do when we go in, inside the walls, we call it. Um, we're connecting women to, to services, trans women, to a place where, for the trans community, I really want to speak on that because we have a program, it's our trans outreach program, and it's specifically a safe space for women, for trans women to be, talk about medication, transition, whatever that is, because most people without safety, I don't care who you are, if you don't feel safe, you're not going to share. I'm not going to share my life with you, I'm not going to talk about that. So in that position, I've known, so like if you're in jail or you're in prison, you're still housed in a male facility a lot. I mean, a lot of changes are happening, but so just the trauma behind that. So being able to have a place where you can go and identify with the other residents in the, play, in the home. Same with women, the same with the mothers. Um, I, think, I think that's important. It, it makes people engaged. When you can relate to what's going on or at least someone in whatever position they are in your life, mentor, recovery coach, therapist, addiction counselor, Someone's doing in-reach services, outreach, street outreach. You've got to be able to relate to that person and being able to identify with somewhere, make that connection. Helping people make changes. Helping people make changes. That's what I believe. I think that's how we can help. Um, that's how we can create opportunities for people because the opportunities are there. I don't know, in funding. I mean, I hate to bring that up, but it matters to have the money to be able to do that. There's a lot of people, I know a lot of, people I can think of right now that are literally out there in the trenches doing the work. And um, I'm not going to say names, but I know a young lady who, she loves what she does. She's in recovery also. And then she has a daughter who's 16 that works at, she, her daughter makes more money than she does. She works at King Soopers. We're taught, we're going to be building lives. We're helping people really be, and saving lives. Um, intervention, you know, so creating funding where you can pay people a livable wage that are out here, that's willing to be out there in those trenches, have health insurance, life insurance. Um, when we're talking about making changes, giving opportunity for some, for some of us that didn't grow up with, with privilege, those are, those are miracles, or blessings, and they're opportunities. I can say that I'm a returning citizen today. 10 years ago, I was a convicted felon. So just changing the words that we use, people in recovery, I'm a returning citizen. I've returned to the community, I've given back to the community that I wreaked havoc in and that I took from and the, the damages. So that's it. I think that's how we can help people in the community. Thank you, Afiza. All right. With that, I'm going to hand it back to Councilwoman Kanich for questions. 
First, can we give this panel a hand, council members? very brave to come and share with um, you know the public and the community your story so thank you so much um, council members we have about 25 minutes so you know kind of short brief questions council president Torres welcome to the meeting first of all and you're first and then if others want to just give me a little uh, notice okay go ahead thank you all thank you um, madam chair thank you all so much um, I both your recovery stories but also how you are sharing them and inspiring folks and being very honest about what you see that works or doesn't work, um, I really appreciate. Um, Alex, you said something in the beginning that I connected with. Uh, you still didn't think you had a problem when you started in recovery. Um, uh, Keith, you mentioned something about um, the Salvation Army program that helped you that is now closed. Um, Arapaho House is now closed. Um, accessible recovery um, has been reduced or eliminated. Um, and Ms. Brown, I think that you hit the nail on the head. The, the um, solution isn't funded. Um, the options for access are not funded. Um, there is a focus on felonizing fentanyl uh, uh, access or um, possession. Um, we wrap these health crises in stigma you talked about um, as if that's a deterrent, right? Um, you'll be ostracized and that should be enough to change your mind um, or you'll face penalty and that should be enough to change your mind. Um, funding more and more law enforcement. Um, so put people in jail for longer. Um, uh, younger, um, all of those things as, is that our actual solution to the problem? Um, for me, what I kept feeling like was, we're not talking about other people's kids anymore, um, other people's problems. Um, there are ways to shelter ourselves from that experience. Um, I would be really surprised if today, everyone in this room couldn't identify somebody that they love who's struggling with addiction or a mental health crisis. Um, so my question for the panel, is there a path to recovery that never involves law enforcement or the criminal justice system? Is that, is that possible in this em environment that we're talking about? People are running to lead the city and that's all we're talking about. Is there a path that, that doesn't involve that that still leads to recovery? I would say with the adolescents, um, that possibility is a lot higher. Um, a lot of our kids who have gotten sober um, through our school and through recovery hasn't had those major rock bottoms yet. They haven't had that real unmanageability or that powerlessness, right? They had a couple of maybe run-ins at school and maybe they got caught with some marijuana, but there was no, there was no police involvement. And that was enough for them to realize like, hey, maybe I'm going down the wrong path here. Or maybe their family found um, a bottle of liquor in their room. And that was still enough for them to say, hey, maybe I'm going down the wrong path here. And I still believe that that intervention work there, that prevention work is still 
guiding kids into recovery. We have kids who are in recovery who are not technically addicts or alcoholics, but they have had some situations that have come up where they just realized that my life is better today not putting any mind-altering substances into my body. And I think that's a good thing. And it allows them to have a clear mind and to be able to, to do high school and, and to be able to be there for their family and do all the things they need to do. So I definitely think on the adolescent side, we can see more and more of people not having to go through these traumatic and dramatic and absurd, incredible rock bottoms to be able to find recovery. And then, yep, go, go ahead. Hi, Alex. Um, and then I, I want to start by saying that I look a lot different um, from other people on this panel who have had different experiences than I have, but um, uh, law enforcement was not a part of my, of my recovery story. I uh, came through recovery through really healthcare, right? I saw a primary care physician and he gave me a depression test and I flunked. Right, and he sent me to the psychiatrist, and and I was a disaster, right, for months seeing this this psychiatrist, and then eventually, you know, through through those healthcare interventions, um, and my life continually getting worse and worse, I ended up in treatment that way. Did you want to go ahead? Yeah, I was going to say, I, my answer would be yes as well. I know I have worked with many over the years who have walked in wanting to rebuild their life, whatever that looked like, that law enforcement wasn't involved in their life. They weren't forced recovery. So there's a thin line right there. It wasn't forced, but they wanted to make some changes, but a lot of it had to do with what they'd seen in other family members or they'd lost somebody out there. And they're like, whoa, I want to get myself together because I don't want to be the next um, person that they find somewhere. So the different reasons, but yeah, it's possible without law enforcement. Madam Chair. Councilmember Gilmore. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Um, it was hard after each one not to clap. Um, <laughs> the 12 steps. Um, so thank you for at the end, um, Councilwoman, that we were able to do that. Um, I really appreciate the <coughs> conversation about addressing trauma and getting to a place of healing and really appreciate you um, mentioning um, you know EMDR work and having personally doing that work now currently you know it takes six to eight months to work with the therapist so that you're ready to pull that band-aid off and you're ready to deal with what comes after that because the relapse the the suicide everything kind of comes full circle and that's something we don't talk a lot about and um, I wondered if there has also been ancestral work or healing those generational traumas um, that you could talk about a little bit or is that being incorporated more I guess into your recovery path uh, to open it up to people where maybe they're like okay, this is my substance of choice, but there's all of these other messages and voices that come through at different times and being able to sift through that and pick out the true messages for yourself on this path. And so just wondered if, if there was work that you have um, incorporated or, or different modalities that could open up recovery to more people. 
Okay, so you want to talk about her? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, JK. Um, that's a good question. So many things went through my mind. I'll start with her. So we have a curriculum, and it's um, her, H-E-R, it's an acronym for Habilitation, Empowerment, and Recovery. is specifically for African-American women, and they've incorporated BIPOC into this curriculum. It, it, the curriculum um, talks about, it utilizes CBT, and it incorporates historical trauma and generational trauma. And there's a lot of, um, there's sessions, part of the sessions, where if a person's okay with it, where the family's included in that. So not only, like I can use my personal story, as opposed to a client. Uh, my, in my story, me and my, me and my sons, of course, we had to do family therapy. I had to acknowledge what I did. Like I can't say, okay, I'm healed now, I'm done. You need to get over it. I had to acknowledge those things. So acknowledging the traumas that you, even though it wasn't intentional, it was inten it, it had an effect. And so when I say historical trauma, we're talking about things I think probably that everybody's aware of in this room. <laughs> There's historical trauma. And for me and my family, uh, there's still effects from that. And, and, and then it goes down to generational trauma socioeconomical status. So we grew up, I grew up with a single mother and we had food stamps, commodities is what we survived on. She didn't have the education. I'm the first one in my family, hmm, I can tell you how old I am, but in my family, <laughs> they went to college. They went and got, you know, they went to college after prison. So there's a lot of things and those things are important. So yeah, that's, um, I think incorporating that, there's a lot. Great. Councilman Flynn, and then I think I'm going to put myself uh, in the queue with a question after Councilman Flynn. <clears throat> thank you, and thank you for being here. As I listened to all of your stories, I was struck by uh, how you all came from different places of isolation, maybe, uh, feeling alone, but plugging into the pathways that ended up working for you, and I found myself struggling to look for a commonality that would... Uh, that would allow the Denver metro area to address more systematically uh, sort of what I had in my mind was a vision of an Ellis Island sort of a facility, a clearinghouse where, uh, where we could coordinate more of this. But I wonder after listening to all the random directions that people entered their uh, addictions and then the random ways they found treatment and, and sobriety and recovery if, is that possible? Do you believe that there's a potential to have in this region a sort of an Ellis Island or a clearinghouse where people could come for more intentional or where we could do more intentional outreach? Because we don't know. We don't know where, where all the people are right now who need help because they're, they're in the shadows for a large, to a large extent. Do you see any potential for, for us to have a more systematic way of getting people into the, uh, the 12 steps or some other treatment? Um, I'll, I'll try that one because that's kind of what, what I do for a living. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. Great question. I mean, it, you know, it, with this panel, it was intended to give you an idea that people are from different areas. It's very hard to say this is the group. Um, you know, one thing that's common to a lot of people, and we were talking about this beforehand, not everyone, 
um, is adverse childhood experiences. And so learning who those folks are preventing adverse childhood experiences and then learning early who those folks are and treating it early. Um, in, in my opinion, if I, if I had a bunch of money and I could put it into anything I wanted, I would put it all into that, 100% into preventing adverse childhood experiences. I would go all in on it. Um, so, you know, where, where are those people? That's the confusing thing. They're in Douglas County. They're in inner city Denver. A lot of them are in jail. You know, we, we do know some places where we have more people, and, and those are criminal justice organizations, you know, shelters and things like that. Um, as far as could we have one location, you know, I mean, we have Denver Health and Hospital System. Denver Cares is a, is a location where a lot of people start their treatment here. Um, Larimer County has something called BHS, Behavioral Health Services, and it is law enforcement drop-off, detox, outpatient, inpatient, methadone clinic, like it's everything. And, and granted, it's treatment, um, but it's kind of for them meant to be that gateway where there's no criteria, there's no insurance criteria. Unless you're bleeding from your head, you can right. get dropped off there. And the idea was bypass the jails, bypass the EDs, give people a place they can go. Um, you know, obviously there needs to be more of a community recovery, but they've thought of that too. And so that's the best example I can think of as far as a, you know, your Ellis Island for starting treatment or recovery. And what is it in, you said DHS? Uh, BHS, sorry, BHS is their acronym for it. It's called Longview Campus and it's in Larimer oh. County. And, and the okay. great thing is it's a larger campus. That's just the first building. Then they're gonna decide, oh, we need more youth resources and that'll be the next building. And so this is a big you know, 10, 20 really? year project with lots of money into it but it's also that idea that we can put everything in one place where people know where to go um you know and and we can build this over time as we figure out what people need and it'll be res like recovery is the goal it's not we want acute treatment it's we need people in recovery thank you thank you for that i'd like to learn more about that the larimer county thank you Thank you, and we can maybe follow up and get some information from the committee staff on Longview, Long, Longview Campus. Thank you. Um, I have a question, and then if any other council members want to get in the queue, let me know. Um, so I wanted to ask about, oh, I have two questions, but I'll start with one, depending if others get in the queue. A couple of you had experienced homelessness during your journeys, and I wanted to ask you um, about what you thought might be realistic in terms of interventions for those experiencing homelessness absent criminal justice approaches, right? So one of the, we've had two suggestions. One, arrest people out of homelessness into treatment. Two, commit people out of homelessness into treatment, neither of which are really constitutional. So they're really concerning issues. Um, you've also already commented on whether or not you think they're effective. So I, you've already commented that you're not sure they're effective. They're also not legal, but we'll set those aside for a second. Um, so what would you suggest, like what's realistic? So for someone, you know, you maybe are street homeless, maybe you are, um, you know, experiencing homelessness and you're using shelter somewhat. But what's really realistic in terms of, you know, if one of your challenges is experiencing substance misuse, maybe it's addiction or maybe you're, you know, I don't know, right? I think we equate that everyone using substances while they're homeless is addicted. I don't know that that's true, right? So that's one of the challenges I have. You might be using, you may be addicted, you may not be, but let's say that substance use is mixed up in there. What, what talk to me about what you would, what should we be talking about other than these other forced criminal justice approaches? 
loaded question. It is, it's See. a tough one, right? Because uh -huh. I think what's, re you know, is, if you don't have a home to be doing outpatient treatment, like, you know, is it is it right to a residential treatment facility? You know, like, let's just, you know, I think it's it's a tough question. And, and I think we'd like to be inserting constructive, positive trauma-informed options into the conversation. Is that trauma-informed places? Now, I think creating more, I think creating trauma-informed spaces to receive those services. There's a lot of things that happen in shelters. I know a lot of women that won't, they'd rather sleep in it outside or they become, they partner with guys that probably aren't so good for them just for protection. I've seen a lot of stuff happen out there. And um, there's some that are using substances, but not everybody. Some people can't afford it. I know people that are homeless because they lost their job. We already have people living paycheck to paycheck on the brink of a mental health crisis, uh, trauma, their family. There's so many different reasons why people are out there homeless. But I think we need to create <laughs> spaces and what that would look like. I don't know. I've heard of the safe like, tent spaces, but I don't know if that's necessarily a good idea. I see housing going up everywhere all the time. There's apartment buildings literally all over the city, the metro area, so it's bigger than Denver. There's new apartment buildings. Who are they building these places for and who can afford them? It's, um, it's unaffordable to live in Denver. I, in my life today, can't afford to live in Denver. So that would be one thing. I don't know. That would be my, those are my first thoughts as far as, can we make it affordable to even live in Denver? The housing. First, yeah. yeah. For those of us who do get up and go to work five, six days a week. And then maybe we can think about our, our um, those that don't have a place to go. And then there's a lot of children that are out there because their parents are homeless. So they don't have uh, an option but to be outside. Some are rejected by their families. Oh, I can go on and on and on. I can just think of <laughs> Kathleen, it looks yeah. like you want, and then Keith, if you want to chime in. When you live in a shelter, um, there's a lot of things that happen in there, and um, your robbery is, is huge. Um, and so someone's taking away all you have. That's all you have left is what you have on your back and a couple other things, maybe your phone, and, but you're robbed. Um, we, I had nowhere to go if it was, but I found the gathering place. And the gathering place fed me in the morning, fed me lunch. We got a snack in the afternoon, and then we were able to catch the bus and get back to the shelter um, by four o'clock, but you're, you're made to leave mm -hmm. all day. So you're left wandering the streets, not knowing where to go. I, had, I didn't have much outreach. Um, that would have helped me a lot, um, having the outreach. And, and if, again, if it wasn't for the gathering place in 2010, that gave me, put me in their housing program, and there was a long waiting list for that housing program. I, I haven't been homeless since. And so if it wasn't for them to give me that break and, and, and cover my first month rent, cover my security deposit, give me a bed, give me a, a comforter, <laughs> it, was, it was like Christmas all over again. And I woke up every morning pinching my cheek. You know. Sounds like housing was key to recovery. Huge. Huge. Keith, did you want to? Yeah, I mean, housing plays a big part. You know, I was homeless for many years living on the streets. And 
when I finally made the decision that I wanted some help. I didn't even have Medicaid at the time. I didn't have any insurance. Lucky enough for me, there was programs like Step Denver that specifies in taking men off of the street, helping them get gainfully employed, helping them with the resources, helping them with therapy there as well, and helping them start to recreate their lives through employment, taking a portion of their paycheck and putting it to the side for them so when they get done with the program, they have some funds that they can that they can utilize. But I went to the Denver Salvation Army, and the program is a six-month inpatient program, and you're there for six months. And it allows you time to learn how to brush your teeth again, wash your face again. The simple things that we take for granted. I didn't eat breakfast for like four years straight. I don't know what that even looks like, right? I didn't take showers on a regular basis. I mean, you get that opportunity and those type of programs to just learn the basics of living again, right? They helped me build a resume. They helped me get gainfully employed. They allowed me to stay there for eight months, Lucky enough for me, I, you know, I had family that I was able to go transition with, but other people don't have those resources. So we have to be able to get them connected and plugged in to sober living. Maybe I can get into this sober living through a voucher where I can stay there for six months because it's already paid up. And that allows me to be able to save some money through my paychecks and start to be able to put some things together. But it's got to be things like that that gives people opportunities Um to found high housing, but if we had more, if we had a program, like you have the Cottonwood program, which is the Salvation Army program for women's, we need more programs like that. They take you straight off the street. It's free. You don't need insurance. Like we need to have programs like that that can take 100, 200 people at a time, and I think that'll give people more willingness to want to do something different with their lives when they know those resources are available to them, and all they have to do is just show up and start to do the work. Thanks. Um, we have our last question from Councilman Cashman, and then um, we will be closing out. Yeah, it's it's more of just, I just wanted to say thank Tonight. you, me too. Um, I, I, all the opportunity, the things that were said, um, I'm sorry, we, we definitely need more treatment uh, opportunities uh, without question, and they need to be affordable, that's obvious. But I agree a thousand percent with what J.K. said. We got to stop creating dope fiends. You know, we need to support our families. Um, all, there's child care isn't available. After school programs are disappearing. We, we need to start at the source and uh, perhaps we, we won't uh, uh, need to fill so many chairs at so many meetings. So uh, thank you all. Really appreciate your being here. Well, I um, my last question I'm going to turn into a comment, which is that I hope that you know our thousands of viewers on Channel Eight, um, and we do share this video afterwards. But I hope that everyone takes away something that can reduce stigma from your conversation, right? So one of the things that we know is I bet somewhere in the stories that you shared, stigma was a barrier, whether it was your own stigma or someone in your family or someone in your community that we know that stigma is uh, a barrier for folks getting help. And our goal was to reduce some of that in our community. We know that the, the question Councilman uh, President Torres asked, that the stigma of this issue is a barrier to people on the journeys that you all are still living. And we look forward to watching you continue to make the impacts in your communities, the ways that you're giving back, 
the long journey ahead for our high school graduate in the spring. We're so excited for you, Christina. But overcoming that stigma and the journeys that you're on, we just can't wait to see the contributions you're gonna make. And so um, I hope that that's a commitment that our community can join with this council in reducing going forward. And so um, with that, this committee is going to be adjourned. And we have one more session um, on the 15th of March. We are going to be um, learning a little bit about what everyone else wanted to talk about all the time, which is fentanyl. It's not the only substance in our community. It's not even the top substance in our community. But we are going to do our homework and learn a little bit more about it on the 15th. Um, and then we will um, continue to take feedback from the committee if there's any other follow-ups that you want us to address in this uh, closeout of the series, but we'll continue to do our other business as a committee as well. So with that, let's do one more hand for our speakers today. Thank you so much. And with that, we are adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>